0: Welcome, everyone, to a Baseball America podcast, along with Jim Callis and Will Lingo, spanning the globe to bring you the constant variety of baseball knowledge at Baseball America. It's the Baseball America podcast, here to talk about our top 100 prospects. Since the three of us do uh, edit and write much of the prospect handbook, why not have us talk about our top 100 prospects? We're three of the six editors and writers here at BA who took, uh, took part in the top 100 deliberations And, Jim, even just the three of us, we did not agree on the number one prospect. Uh, You had Mike Trout, the Angels outfielder. Will and I had Bryce Harper, the Nationals' uh, number one overall pick from last year and the right fielder slash center fielder. Uh, What's your take? uh, What made you rank Trout number one at the top of your top 100 list?
1: You know, I I think those guys are close, and, uh, you know, it's basically a coin flip. I think we all had them. You guys have both had them number two. I just think Trout, you know, I I think the the up-the-middle guys are more of a premium. I'm not not buying Bryce Harper as a center fielder, at least not long term. And I look at Mike Trout as a guy who can be a gold-glove center fielder. I think he can be a batting champion. I think he's going to hit at least 15 to 20 homers a year, and I think he's going to steal a ton of bases and, and, you know, draw well more than his share of walks. You know, and the flip side is, you know, Harper. I think is going to be kind of a, uh, you know, maybe more athletic, a lot more athletic. Adam Dunn, you know, a guy who's hitting, you know, two seventy, you know, forty homers a year, you know, good amount of walks, you know, probably some strikeouts in there too, and playing on the outfield corner. I, I do think, I like the Adam Dunn comparison. I've heard people make. I don't think it works athletically because Adam Dunn is a horrible liability with a glove and I don't think I think Harper's going to be a lot better defensively than that.
0: Yeah, that's why I don't like that comparison because Adam Dunn is lumbering. Uh I like the Larry Walker I like comparison. I liked how uh, someone on our Facebook
2: page uh, asked when you know our readers were asked about the top of the list said if Trout was number 1 it would destroy our credibility.
0: So your credibility is yeah. destroyed, Jim, at least with <laughs> I, so I agree with uh, you uh, that I'll listen to the rest of the podcast quietly then. <laughs>
2: I agree with you that it's a close call, and I just think Harper's thump in the middle of the lineup is what gave him a little bit of an edge to me.
0: Yeah, not to get too you know into the nitty gritty, but when you I actually just try to line them up tools wise, and they both are tool sheds. Obviously, we're talking about one and two. I think the Harper's tools have more lasting value over the, his career. I, I think he's, he's an 80 power. That's his best tool. It's going to stay. He's going to be an 80 power guy forever. And whereas Mike Trout's an 80 run tool, but you know, that's, he's not, is he going to play as an 80 run guy in the big leagues? I'm not sure about that. I think Harper's the biggest question is the hit tool. I think he's got a better chance to hit, you know, more than 260 or 270. I don't like the Dunn comp at all because Adam Dunn doesn't hit for average. I mean, obviously he walks a lot, but uh, I think Bryce Harper will hit for average. Right now he doesn't necessarily project as easily to do that because he has a pretty exaggerated leg kick and he tries to crush everything, but I I saw progress just in that just in the Arizona Fall League and uh, when scouts you know that I've talked to have asked look for a comp on Harper it's been Larry Walker with more power and uh, and that's scary because that was the one thing in Larry Walker's game that really wasn't uh, you know a high level tool until he got to Coors Field but uh, either way I think those two guys are both those guys are number one on your list it's a good list it's a good year at the top of a list when you have in my mind two true number one candidates, um, I, you know, we, there's a lot of ways we could go with this discussion. I did think just looking at the top 10 is a little bit interesting because there's some interesting, you know, kind of fascinating players in there. One we thing all We all
2: have uh, Julio Taranis, the top pitcher. I, I feel like we did. That's, what,
0: that's the next place to go is the top pitching prospect just is not obvious. I actually feel like we had Jeremy Hellickson as the guy who came out number one with the votes. And then we decided to go a little bit more upside and flip him and Tehran.
2: Yeah, John actually had Helixson ahead, and uh, Jim and I had Tehran ahead. But again, it was kind of like Trout and Harper. They were all they were both next to each other. So
0: those two guys are so different, uh, Tehran and Helixson. Obviously, you have a guy who's barely been—I believe Tehran's been out of A-ball uh, briefly. I think the last year is in Double A, I think. And then Jeremy Helixson, of course, has been in the major leagues. Um, and Jim's got a fax to get. But if I do think, to me, uh, that that's when we went for upside, Will, over uh short-term game. I think Jeremy Hellickson's proven that he's ready to go uh, in the big leagues and pitched well there last year. Yeah, uh, I think the question
2: people have had with Hellickson is just how – how many plus pitches is he going to have in the big leagues? Is he going to be a top-of-the-rotation guy or just maybe a middle-of-the-rotation guy? But, again, it's, it's almost like Trout and Harper. You go with – I think Tehran has more upside, that's why I put him ahead, but Helixon seems like a pretty safe bet to me.
0: And then the next two pitchers are Chapman and Taya. I mean oldest Chapman, is clearly I think everyone knows his upside. If we could have gone ninety on his BA grade, we would have put a ninety for a fastball there. I mean uh, if you're I mean some scouts uh, say there's only one eighty of uh, if there's only one eighty fastball, it's it's him. Yes, it's old it. Chapman. Um but you know, he might be a big league reliever. He's good he has been a big league big league reliever. Let's say he's going to be one for 2011. So he clearly, I think, is the best arm in the minor leagues. But it's hard to call a relief pitcher the best pitching prospect in the minors. And then Tyone hasn't pitched in pro ball yet. So it's but really I think unusual. I Jim is
2: probably our most bullish on Tyone. Wouldn't you say that's fair, Jim?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we all like him. I just, uh, you know, th- from talking to scouts, I think he's maybe the closest thing to Josh Beckett. And and you're right. I mean, it, it, I thought the list was kind of tough to put together this year because as much as I like Tyone, I, I think I ranked him eighth overall on my list, and I didn't necessarily expect I was going to do that. But yeah, that feels too high. Because t- so many of the best – it seemed like so many of the better pitchers, you know, are either in low A-ball or A-ball or hadn't pitched – it was it was really hard to come up with proven arms who are ready to step into the big league. You know, Hellickson's obviously won, and Chapman's already pitched there. But I don't know if there are too many of our other top pitching prospects on this list uh, who you'd say, you know, that guy is ready to pitch in the big leagues on opening day. I mean, Chris Sale, obviously, because he's already done it. And I don't even know who the fourth highest guy might be on this list. I mean, I guess it might be Zach Britton. Right. I but, think what uh, I don't top- think he's guaranteed to make it in the opening day roster.
2: Yeah, I think what you're saying seems like a common feeling for everybody who put together a, a top 150, which is what we mashed together to eventually end up with the top 100. It seemed like everybody felt like their guys were about 10 spots ahead of where, in your mind, you would think you would have ranked them going into the process. But uh, it just seemed like that's the way that's the way the talent lined up this year. And especially once you got into the 40s and 50s, to me, is when it started really sort of, you know, getting scattershot almost.
0: And the pitching, I think I think like we already touched on, the pitching is where I think we had the biggest differences of opinion. And that's because there's just not a consensus top group. I mean, like, my, where's Michael Pineda? He's 16. And Michael Pineda wasn't even on our top 100 last year. That's one of the – we'll, we'll get talk about some of the high risers in this year's top 100 uh, a little bit later in the podcast, hopefully. But he is – he after Hellickson, he's the only other guy among these – who's had any experience at AAA. And then a lot of our AA pitchers who are here uh, as starters are guys like Mike Montgomery, John Lamb, Martin Perez, guys who have maybe half a season at AA or who haven't succeeded at AA, like a Martin Perez. So, you know, that's where a guy like a Chris Archer, who's around the 30 range, where do we put Chris Archer, 27 – um, it really jumps up. He stands out as a guy with frontline stuff and experience at Double A level and some success at Double A level. And that that's one of the big reasons for me why you know, he ranks as high as he does is because there aren't that many pitchers like him in the minor leagues who have a chance to start, have frontline stuff, and have experience above the uh, A ball level. Or right behind him, Zach Britton, a guy yeah. who
2: is maybe a little bit unsung, but. You know, his is one of the best pitches in the minors and I think he's he's pretty primed for major league success.
0: Yeah, that group of Archer twenty seven, Britton, twenty eight, Kyle Drabeck twenty-nine. Um, looking at that, I almost think we're a little low on Drayback. Um yeah. I like Kyle Drabeck. I'm not I guess the question is will he get left handers out? There's a guy who has had trouble getting left handed hitters out in the upper minors. Um, but but he has a chance to have two really good pitches with his fastball and curveball. Um, One of the subjects that we did this year in the the Top 100 was split decisions. Uh, Might be an easy way to get into the discussion in the podcast to look at some of those split decisions. Jim, uh, the first one was one of the ones that uh, was a great idea that you had to to discuss because it wasn't planned. But three straight Royals wound up uh, around three straight Royals wound up at eight, nine and ten with Eric Hosmer at first base. Mike Moustakis at third base. Will Myers, formerly a catcher, now moving to the outfield eight, nine and ten. and it really seems like there's no wrong answer. We, we talk about that a lot. Uh, you and I have done it in podcasts where there's no right, right or wrong answer in ranking prospects. But there's really no wrong answer with all three of these guys. The Royals are pretty lucky to have all three of them. But uh, what was your rationale and, and the way you ranked them?
1: Well, I went with Moustakis, number one. And, again, I mean, I think you can – the great thing about those three is you can put those guys in any order and come up with a reason to defend it. And, you know, now that Will Myers is in the outfield – I think Mustakis offers the most position value, although I don't think he's going to be a Gold Glove third baseman. But I do think he plays the scarcest position. He's proven himself at the higher level. He tied for the minor league ho- lead in homers last year. I, I think he's got the he, he's got more power. I, I think in the long run than Hosmer and Myers, although none of the, those two guys are, are going to have power too. I just, for me, you're trying to find ways to separate them. I just think Mustakis a plays a, a tougher position. B, he's proven himself at a higher level, and and C, I think he's going to have more impact power in the long run.
2: Yeah, I I did the same thing and happened to do the Texas League prospect list this year, and people were more enthusiastic than I expected them to be about Moustakas' defense, so that's the reason I felt comfortable putting him first. Um, I do think he'll be able to stay at third for a while, and I think the Northwest Arkansas park factor got overblown a little bit. I think... From talking to people, it was more of just a factor of that lineup being unbelievably strong. Um, and like you said, he did go to AAA and continued to hit well. So I felt very comfortable putting him ahead of the other two guys. But like you say, the other two guys are going to be good too.
0: It's a chance that Will Myers is the highest ceiling of any of these guys. Yeah. I mean, he's probably the most athletic. Um If he had been a catcher and if the Royals had been committed and said no, we're not going to be in a hurry. We're going to stick him behind the plate if that means he gets to the big leagues in 2013. So be it. Um, you know, but as JJ has reported on our blog, JJ Piccolo, their farm director, just said, "No, we we want him to come up in 2012. He's, he's on his, his bat's just too advanced, and yeah, they would like, switched him."
2: It seemed like the separation between the offense and defense was greater than they thought. Right. So I mean, in a way, it makes sense. But
0: but if he were still a have catcher, have a catcher like that, hmm,
2: that's mighty tempting.
0: Yeah, if he were still a catcher, I I think I would have ranked Will Myers first. I guess the one other issue that uh, is brought up in that um, conversion of him to the outfield is they are cognizant of the Twins, the fact that the Twins, you know, a lot of times do not have Joe Maurer in their lineup because he catches and the nicks and and, uh, scrapes and the the bruises and the bumps and the days off that you need as a catcher, and they want Will Myers in the lineup conceivably 150 times. You put
2: Hosmer first, right? I did put Hosmer first. You should state the case for Hosmer, too. I
0: think he has the chance to have just as much power as Mustakas, and I think he's a better pure hitter. And so I went with that. And because I think he has less raw power than Mustakas, but more playable power because he's a better pure hitter. So I went with the best pure hitter. I actually think there's a case you can make for Will Myers as the best pure hitter. But combination of pure hit, power, the loud season he had last year. I have the least doubts about Eric Cosmer. There's less unknown with Eric Cosmer. And, uh, you know, I'm surprised that they haven't even given him a shot in the outfield. I know he doesn't run, but his arm is a weapon, potentially. It's a plus arm. It's kind of wasted over at first base, But nice problem to have. Um, I know I'm jumping around a little bit here, but there's three Royals right here in our top 10, five in our top 20 with John Lamb and Mike Montgomery, nine in the top 100 overall, Jim. That's a record for baseball America history. We've never had a team with nine players in the top 100. I think there was a a tenth player, whether it was Brett Eibner or Jeremy Jeffers or whoever. But I know other. I think eleven Royals got votes um, on the top 150, if I remember correctly. Maybe JJ voted them all. That's <laughs> very possible. Um, well, Aaron Cro was on everybody. the border um, line. That's who was on the border. Yeah, Aaron Crow, So they almost had ten. Um, were you surprised they got that many? And I mean, I. I guess, where do the Royals line up for you in all-time farm systems in your almost 20 years of Baseball America experience?
1: Yeah, you know, I think they're right up there. I mean, I, I don't think any of us were surprised because, you know, it's amazing. Not only do the Royals have the best farm system in baseball, but, you know, we've been inundated with questions about that. I could do almost a Royals question and ask BA every week about some aspect of how good their farm system is. So after the, the Zach Greinke trade, uh, you know that was asked a lot. You know, how many guys are they going to have on the top 100? I know, I know. JJ's dream was that they'd get 10 or 11 guys on the top 100, but uh, they'll have to settle for nine. And you know, it's uh, you know, you could have made a case for Aaron Crow. Uh, you know, I guess he was the only guy in what would have been their re- reconstituted top 10 who didn't make it. Uh, Jeremy, Je- did Jeremy Jeffers make the? I can't find Jeffers uh, on the list Jeffers right now.
2: Jefferson, I- sure. Jefferson were both in the 140 range on the Raw. Okay, but but you're
1: talking. I mean, what's interesting is, I mean, they didn't make it, but Eibner got votes from five people and Jeffers from four. So, I mean, you know, there was, you know, at least majority of us. You know, if you kept going, they might have had thirteen or fourteen. I think you can. I think they're up there. I mean, they're up there with the great farm systems like the. You know the Rays, Rave, the Raves farm system. When you go back a couple of years, when David Price and Evelyn Longoria were one and two on that list,
0: yeah, it's pretty. You good. know
1: they had you know a bunch of guys. You know the Hellicksens of the world. You know still coming up behind them. Yeah, that one jumps out. I, I think the the Braves for 20 years just seemed like they had a never-ending group of prospects. You know they they'd send one wave to the big leagues and another would be ready. They were probably the best sustained one. And and then when I first got to Baseball America, the, the Expos were really in their heyday. And just had an unbelievable farm system and a, an unbelievable you know, player development and field staff. When you go back and look at who is managing and scouting for them. You know, numerous guys who went on to become you know, big league managers or GMs or scouting directors. Right. Uh, you know, The Expos were a classic. Uh, and that's classic actually – uh, Those were probably the best in recent memory.
2: That's actually referred to in our From the Archives feature in the Top 100 Prospects Print Edition. Uh, We went back to a 1988 issue that talked about the the Expos building and talked about all the guys in their front office, including Frank Wren, Dave Dombrowski, Bill Stoneman, Gary Hughes, and Dan Duquette. So, yeah, what you're talking about is, is right on. And J.J. Cooper is actually working on a really interesting story that's going to appear in our minor league preview issue, where he's going to go back and talk to some of the organizations Jim has alluded to, and even some other ones, about Okay, you have a great farm system. How do you make this the leap from having a great farm system to having a good major league team?
0: Yeah, we had a and, couple of recent examples in the last decade. You have the Dodgers with their 2005 Jacksonville team that was our minor league team of the year. That system was loaded: Matt Kemp, uh, you know, Russell Martin, James Loney, Chad Billingsley, Jonathan Broxton, Angel Roach, and Joel Guzman were in the system that year. They did not necessarily pan out. Joel Guzman still gaining acceptance, (laughs) believing in the Orioles system.
2: And he went back and looked at some of the organizations that have had bountiful top 100s, you know, with multiple guys in the the list. And actually, this year's Rays are in the discussion among all those teams um, because they have seven guys in the top 100. So even though the Royals, you know, rightfully so get a lot of the attention this year, the Rays are right up there with them still.
0: Yeah, and, you have, and I think some of the other top, we'll have a chart about this, but uh, some of the other teams that really stuck out, the Indians' top 10 from 2003 wasn't as strongly represented in our top 100, but if you go back and you look at that as one of the best top 10s of all time, Grady Sizemore was at number 7. In terms of the top 30, like Johnny Peralta was at number 17, um, Cliff Lee was in that list, uh, Victor Martinez, um, uh, Brandon Phillips, so... You know that that list obviously was built on that on the on the Bartolo cologne trade, but those those are the two those are two organizations I know jj has been bearing down on as recent examples where they had they knew they had a lot of talent, and they knew that they had a lot of talent that was big league ready, and the question is how do you supplement those prospects and make a winning big league team because it's one thing the easy part is building a good farm system, the tough part is is winning with it and the Rays are next and the Rays, Braves and Yankees were next, the Rays was seven, Braves and Yankees with six players apiece in our top 100. Obviously the Braves and Yankees playoff teams last year, uh the Rays won the East. won the division, playoff team. So those three teams have figured it out. They've, you know, especially the Rays and the Braves have been consistently at the top of our rankings and they win in the big leagues. Uh the Yankees win in the big leagues. Um and, and so the Royals really obviously don't have New York's resources, and uh, they have to show they can be like the Braves and the Rays and work their prospects into the big league team while having success. So that's, that's the next challenge. Uh, a couple other of these split decisions um, that we wanted to get to and that we got to in the magazine, um, I, I like the, you know, the, the Royals figure in, in all three of the first three. Uh, top left-handed starters, Matt Moore, John Lamb, Mike Montgomery, Martin Perez, Zach Britton. I think we all probably agree that Zach Britton is the safest bet. Out of those is that fair? can I put you in the safe Zach Britton camp Jim?
1: yeah, but I think that also slights Zach Britton a little bit too because I think his stuff's pretty good I, I don't think he gets as much credit, you know he's not a role as chapman, uh you know, but I mean you're talking about a guy with you know exceptional sink on a on a quality fastball, his slider got better last year, you know, it's not like he's you know, 89, 92 miles an hour throwing strikes. I, I think his stuff is is well above average for a left hand.
2: Yeah, that's one of those things that, that I noted too. His stuff and his just his pitchability has gotten better every year. He's It seems like he's continued to work hard every year to get a little bit better. And, you know, they every year I talk to the Orioles, they talk about, you know, some aspect he's added to his game that's made him just a little bit better. He takes his his best stuff deeper into starts or he has figured out better how to attack hitters, you know, facing them multiple times, things like that. Um, so I agree with you completely on that one.
0: I don't mean to damn him with faint praise, certainly, but I do think he's he's the guy that I think you can feel the safest, uh, the most confidence in in this group. It wouldn't stun me if one of the other five guys here just didn't even make it to the big leagues. Oh, yeah. You know, like if John Lamb or Mike Montgomery. Uh, I'll be shocked if Martin Perez is a making considering he got the double A at age 18. But he's been pretty bad since he I got the double I was a.
2: surprised Again, goes back to me talking to people in the Texas League, but it surprised me how lukewarm some people were on him this year and wondered if he's going to be able to sustain that kind of stuff as he goes up to higher levels.
0: Well, he, he had about as bad a year as anybody yeah. in the top 25 had. I mean, his velocity was down, his stuff wasn't as sharp, and he didn't perform. So, uh, you know, which is the real Martin Perez? Like I wrote, In there, I kind of gave him a little bit of a pass, and really gave him more credit for his youth and being at that level. And he hasn't been overwhelmed at that level, but he hasn't been successful either. Yeah, I think
2: it's fair to give him a pass at his age in Double A, but this is definitely going to be an important year to see, you know, what what he adds to the good or the bad.
0: Yeah, exactly. This is going to be a pretty big deal for him. Uh, Matt Moore is other kind of to me. I think Matt Moore and John Lamb are the two highest ranked guys out of these two, and. And these guys were fifth and eighth round picks, eighth round for Moore, fifth round for Lamb. They were somewhat known commodities, but they both signed for what's like it's like a combined two hundred and seventy thousand dollars, Jim. Um
1: yeah, two seventy or two eighty, yeah.
0: Yeah, and they and they really stick out on this top one hundred for that. I mean, is Moore is he the lowest signing bonus of any uh domestic any drafted player on this list? I think he is. I, think, he's the I lowest. think Chris
1: Carter is. I think Chris Carter got one and five, and I want to okay. say Moore got one ten or one fifteen. Yeah, Moore
0: got one fifteen. So if Carter got got one then that would be true. Be Chris Carter. But I mean Matt Moore. Um, I hope he's more Matt Moore and less Clinton the Jot. But that's the last guy. Who, <laughs> that's another guy who led the minor leagues in strikeouts. But he's like Matt Moore has more fastball than Clinton the the old Mariners farmhand who threw a lot of sliders. Um, but I was still surprised that Matt Moore came out at the front of this list. I like that he did. I voted him at the front of this list because he seems like he has two pitches that at their best are 70s on a 20-80 scale. Um, but I didn't expect him to come out at the front of this list. But I guess if you strike out guys like that, you're going to
2: you're gonna get all
0: of our attention.
2: And, again, we're talking about five guys who are ranked within 13 spots. So right. That's why we called it split decisions because these are the, the tougher calls in the top 100. All five of these are quality guys.
0: Then we also had a group of uh, future second basemen. Um, to, I'm glad someone put that question mark on the teleprompter. Uh, but they're not all second basemen right now, but Christian Colon, Nick Franklin, Jason kidnis John Segura, all these guys, I think we're we're projecting them as big league second basemen rather than shortstops. Certainly Christian Colon and Nick Franklin play shortstop now. Uh, the Angels plan, apparently, on having John Segura play shortstop in 2011. Um, this was a tough one. I think the crazy thing here, Will, was that – we all had Christian Colon in about the same range as a, on our top 150s, but none of us had him first, but because we had the most consistent rankings of Christian Colon, he wound up first. And I, I kind of like that he wound up first, because again, I don't see a downside for Christian Colon, and I really believe in his bat.
2: Yeah, it shows you the power of consensus voting. Like you said, I don't think anybody had him in the top among that group of four guys you mentioned, but everybody had him pretty solidly in the same area, so that put him ahead. Segura is, is the most interesting guy to me. I think when I rank, it's another guy where your ranking of him doesn't seem like it's right. And right. I thought I was going to be too high on him, and I think I ended up being too low on him. Um, but I think he's the guy who might end up jumping up this list You know, when we look at it next year.
1: Yeah, he's had, the most athletic yeah. of that group. I yeah. think he got overshadowed a little bit in the Midwest League because he played on the same team with Mike Trout. But He's the rare second baseman who might actually have enough athletic ability to actually play shortstop. I, I've never gotten a clear answer as to why the Angels hadn't tried him there previously. But, uh, yeah, he's got some pop, too. I mean, he's – I wouldn't call him a five-tool player, but he does a little bit of everything. He might be his – he's probably the best-rounded of those players that we're talking about
0: I do like Jason Kipnis's bat. I think that's why I had Kipnis first out of this. He is—he's probably the least well-rounded, and he's also the one who's trying to make this outfield to second base conversion, uh, the Scoop Schumacher uh, conversion. I mean, i am sure there are other guys who've done it. Uh, thankfully for Kipnis, he's not doing it at the big league level, but he did have experience at second base in the past. I actually saw him play third base in the fall league, and that was a little bit of a surprise. Uh, but that team had—he's on the same team as Dustin Ackley, another. Uh, converted to second base guy. Um, but I think that t- to me, he's the guy who has the best chance to hit for power in the big leagues. And even though I was high on him in the draft, I'm I'm almost more, um, not suspect. I think I'm almost more um, just cautious about Nick Franklin. Cause it was such a big year in the Midwest league and it was kind of unexpected that he hit for that kind of power.
2: Yeah. It'll be interesting to see how he, how he builds on that. I agree with you on Kitness. It almost feels like Kitness should rank first among this group. Cause you feel like he's going to, He's the safest base bet to hit. Um,
1: yeah, but he might be the worst bet to stick at second base too. So right, right. That, that's why it's so interesting with these guys. Yeah. And, you, know, you you know, they're all different profile. You know, Franklin, in some respects, was kind of a, a you know poor man's version of Mike Trout. You know, fellow first round pick who was much better than people expect him to be. I'm not saying he's a Mike Trout kind of prospect that he's that good. That's fair though. But, but both similar. They were both taken about the same spot in the draft and i think if you were redoing the draft today i don't think there's any doubt that you know, Mike trout would be the number 2 pick in the 2009 draft after Strasburg probably um and you know nick franklin would probably be somewhere in the top 10 and he's got a shot to play short i think he can i think he can play short but i think he's one of those guys if he's your big league shortstop you want a better defender there you know he won't kill you but you'd want somebody better
0: and and that whole position's evolving so much the big league level uh yeah, the offense has like come down, right? It's going back to Raphael Belliard days, so maybe not that extreme. But in that environment, in a more scarce run environment, uh, will that make teams say, oh, we've got an offensive shortstop here who's just an average defender in Nick Franklin? Or will they say, well, runs are more scarce. We better defend better and move Nick Franklin over to second base. That, that's going to be fascinating to watch. And, you know, it's difficult. Uh, you know, we're trying to evaluate Nick Franklin in a vacuum, not necessarily in what might happen with him in the Mariners' system. I I think I agree with you. I think he has the best chance of that group to stay at short. I would not count that out for Christian Colon, but it seems like the Royals have. That's why they went out and got Alcides Escobar and the Zach Grinky trade was so they'd have a shortstop who can defend. And uh, I think Christian Colon's tools are short for shortstop, but I think he can handle it because of his instincts. I think he's a playmaker. And
2: just just to point this out for readers, uh, we also have a Nick Franklin org report in the top 100 issues. So, um, I thought it was an interesting org report just to round out uh your your Nick Franklin knowledge, you can find that either online or in the issue.
1: Well yeah. interesting thing about Franklin too is I mean, you know with Ackley, you know, the same you know, same organization. Right. If you you know, if Ackley does stick at second, then Franklin has to stick at short. I mean I guess you could try to play him at third if he keeps hitting for the same kind of power. But I I also think if you have Franklin in short and Ackley at second, you probably want a better guy at both positions. But yeah. If they decide, you know, Ackley's going to get there a couple of years ahead of him. If Ackley establishes himself in second, then you know they have a vested interest in keeping Franklin. At
0: short. I've never really thought about that in, in the in the Ackley context. And obviously, you don't. You know, Ackley's already in Triple A and has a chance to win their big league second base job this year. Whereas I think Franklin's going to be in High A, maybe Double A this year. It's a little bit different timetables. But I, you know, I have to imagine that conversation is going on uh, with Jack Zieringick and his subordinates uh, there in Seattle because that's a that's a pretty fascinating element to that as well. It was also
2: funny in the Franklin Org Report, he uh, he talked about how his homer burst shouldn't have been unexpected <laughs> because he hit six home runs as a junior in high school, 11 as a senior, and then, of course, 23 <laughs> in, his, <laughs> in his first full pro season.
0: We all saw it coming, Nick. Oh, yeah. It's uh, good to see that Nick has the necessary arrogance <laughs> to be a, a top 55 prospect. Um, full season catchers, we kind of had to call that a full season because uh, – We didn't include Jesus Montero, and then uh, Gary Sanchez hasn't played, uh, but our top two catching prospects are both junkies. And then after that, it's Travis Darnot, Tony Sanchez, Willen Rosario, Devin Masaraco, Derek Norris. I will say if Rosario hadn't hurt his knee, I think I would have ranked Rosario at the front of this list. But the knee injury gave me some pause. Uh, I don't remember if I had him third or fourth out of this group. I went with Travis Darnot, who seems like he has the best chance to uh, both be an, an impact defender and have an impact bat. But I think Jim, you had Rosario and uh you know, man, it, there's nothing I don't think there's a wrong answer out of those but those I think it is telling that we ranked the top defensive guys as the first three guys and then put the bat first guys, Mesorako and Norris, lower in the top one hundred. Was that conscious on your part, Jim?
1: Yeah, because I, I think again when you're talking catchers, you wanna you wanna feel confident the guy's gonna stay a catcher. I still don't have that confidence with Derek Norris, although I ranked him fairly high on my list. Um, you know, I don't think anybody questions Rosario or Darno sticking behind the plate. You know, Sanchez is probably the best defensive catcher in the minors, at least among the, the top minor league prospects. And, you know, Miserocco, you know, he, he had a great year last year offensively, but I know you saw this firsthand, John, but it seemed like the further he went up, especially by the time he got to AAA and then in the fall league, you just heard more and more questions about his defensive ability. I, I don't think he's actually going to have to move off the catcher. But he sounded pretty uh, pretty rough back there as a receiver, at least at the end of the year.
0: Yeah, and he's a big physical guy. It's possible that, you know, with all his injuries, it's, it could have just been that he just got gassed for the end of the first, uh, you know, of, for the end of a very long full season. That's very possible. But, well, he, you know, it wasn't just my eyes. It was I was asking people about it, like, am I crazy or is he not catching anything back there? It's so I'm definitely colored in my head that Mesoraco's receiving – by his receiving problems – I still think 64 is pretty good placement for a guy where less of the bat is ahead of the, of the of the glove at a position like catcher. Yeah, for most of our other split
2: decisions, the guys have been really tightly grouped. These guys are spread across basically half the list. I do think Rosario was having almost, you mentioned Pineda earlier, as being not on the list last year in, what, 15, 14? Yeah, 15 or 16, yeah. This year. He was having that kind of year until he hurt his knee. Um and, again, like you said, the Rockies say his knee is going to be fine. It's not going to be a long-term concern. But you, it does give you a little bit of pause, especially for a, a position that creates that much wear and tear on you. But, yeah, people were really enthusiastic about him last year.
0: And then our, our last split decision was about as different as two players probably were in the whole list, uh, Brent Morrell and Jonathan Villar. In some ways, both shortstops. You know, Brent Morrell played some shortstop. I don't think anyone thinks of him as a shortstop. Um, but Morrell, the White Sox third baseman, pretty polished, big league ready player out of Cal Poly. Jonathan Villar, we even got his name wrong in the handbook last year. I did. I got his name wrong in the handbook last year. Um, but this guy, to me, um, you know, you look around the minor leagues, there's not a lot of great shortstops. Uh, so I ranked them pretty aggressively because I, I think in the whole minor leagues, um, there's not a lot of shortstop prospects. Guys have a chance to be big league shortstops. Uh, better than Villar, but uh, some of our staffers, especially, you know, Connor Glassy and Matt Eddy both. I mean, Matt Eddy brought a Brian Bixler comp on me on Jonathan Villar, which which hurt my heart. I took that personally. And, and
1: yet Matt ranked him higher than any of us did on the preliminary lists. Did he really? It's funny how. Yeah, it yeah. Did Matt ranked sometimes. him seventieth and makes a Brian Bixler comp. So I think it's like Matt's a schizophrenic or
0: something. He loves <laughs> Brian Bixler all of a sudden, but uh, but and Connor Glassy who comped him to Caesar Asturis. Which is actually pretty interesting because he's a has had an eight, nine, ten-year big league career. I think that Jonathan Villar actually—that's that's not a far-fetched comp. Um, I'm not even and sure that if means that he. You talk
2: about shortstop devolving. Correct. That, that's Cesar not a bad Asturis career. played in a bad time to have that kind of profile, but maybe you know that time—the times—they are changing. And I think
0: that Jonathan Jonathan Villar's speed is superior to Asturis' and it can be more of a factor once he makes it the big leagues. That said, he struck out 153 times in A-ball last year. That is a lot. He has a swing issue from the left side, which we write about in the prospect handbook. Um, that's an issue. Brent Morrell is also more of like a – I almost feel like if he hadn't ranked in the top two or three, if he wasn't the number two White Sox prospect, right. maybe he wouldn't have been our top 100 at all. But, I mean, he does seem like he has a Joe Randa chance, a chance at a Joe Randa-type career, Jim I, you know, what's your, what's your take on those two players?
1: I think he's kind of similar to to a guy who was a white Sox their base a couple of years ago and Joe Creedy in that I don't think morell's ever going to be a huge impact bat, but I think he's going to be a good defender and and provide some offense and and you're right they they really are you know you know it's kind of a philosophical question you know i, I liked morell more than Villar. Villar's raw tools interest me, but I just think the bat's so far away and morell's ready to play in the big leagues right now that that i would go with morell um you know i I'll, I'll take the the bird in the hand. Uh, you know, rather than the two in the bush right now, and take the guy who's going to step in and have a big league job on opening day. But, but you're right. I mean, Villar's upside is high. I, I actually, uh, I don't like the Bixler comp at all, and I don't like the Asturis comp at all because, I, like you said, John, I think he's got more physical tools that can make him more of an offensive player than his tourists. You know, it's possible his bat won't develop, and he'll be in his like offensive presence. But his tourist is also one of the, the very, very best defensive shortstops in the last 10 or 15 years in the big leagues, too. So I, I don't like either of those comps. I, you know, I did not have Villar, in my top 100. I had him look at this number 119 on my top 150. Uh, you know, Very interested. He's, he's one of those guys I'm very interested to see what he does this year. I, I think we'll know a lot. I think Valar will either be about 50th on this list a year from now, or we won't even be talking about him. I think yeah, whatever he comes in, if he, he'll either yeah, come I mean, out and hit, and then we'll believe in him and say, you know, this guy's really good. If he struggles again with the bat, then I think we'll be wanting him to prove it again in 2004. And we've missed
2: with plenty of guys like of both types in the past, right? I mean, you know, we guys who get close to the big leagues are going to get ranked just because of the same reason we're ranking Brett Morel. It seems like there's little chance he's going to fail to at least do something in the big leagues, but it happens all the time. Yeah,
0: he, I mean, he just because he's been there doesn't mean he's going to have a lot of success with it, success with it. Our last group was relief pitchers, Jacob McGee, Tanner Sheppers, and uh, Craig Kimbrell. That's another one where, I mean, really, it's a it's a toss-up. McGee wound up ranking, you know, a decent amount ahead of the other guys. I have a feeling that's because he's left-handed. That might be the biggest reason. Um, I also do think Jake McGee's got a chance to really make an impact. in the. I hope he, we're going to work on top 20 rookies later this week. Jake McGee's going to be pretty high on my top 20 rookies personally. Um You know, I just think a left-hander with that kind of stuff, he just seems like he has a chance to have a a Billy Wagner-type career, Um, and he got his Tommy John out of the way early in his career, as opposed to Billy Wagner, who had it later. Um, But but Tanner Shepherds, for me, Jim, is one of the hardest guys to rank. Well, I don't know. I I, I agree completely. It's impossible for me.
2: I was actually, I'm going to look back at the spreadsheet before I argue for Jake McGee, because I feel like Jake McGee should be ahead of these other two guys, but then... Like Jim was saying with one of the other discussions, I probably rank Shepherds way ahead of everybody else, but I like Shepherds a lot too. I agree that it's really hard to figure out where to rank him just because there are so many question marks, and really have been since what was supposed to be his his big draft year. So,
0: um, well, Shepherds is a guy that we artificially adjusted down, and you did have Shepherds highest. You had him higher than No, he
1: he had McGee one spot ahead of him. My okay. Oh, one
0: spot. Okay, I'm sorry. I just saw three digits from far away. My old <laughs> eyes are getting bad. But uh, I, I, for me, Shepard's like, he's, like you said, Will, I mean, like, he just has been in a, a – there's been a variable there really since, like, the fall of 07, when he really – this tremendous fall. You hear all these reports as we're getting our 2008 college preview issue ready. Like, man, this guy really had a tremendous fall, 97, 98 miles an hour, easy athleticism. Had a great start to the year with Fresno State. He was used pretty aggressively there. I'm not saying he was abused, but he was used heavily there. They leaned on him a lot. Then he was gone. Of course, they won the national title without him. I've never even found out if he has a ring or not. But he – and then he started some uh, with the Rangers last year. He relieved some. I guess it was relief, then start, then relief again. Uh, I think he looks like he's going to be a reliever in the big leagues, but I would think just reading all the stuff that John Smoltz always talked about, he thought starting was easier on his arm than relieving. So – uh, but, of course, he had elbow issues, not shoulder issues like Shepard's. Uh certainly seems like Shepard's has the stuff to start. Kimbrell's a reliever all the way. Right. And I think McGee, I had a scout last year describe him as a, kind of a left-handed Rich Harden, uh, you know, except that he has a better breaking ball, which Rich Harden's like a straight fastball changeup guy. Uh, McGee, but, but a guy who's a five- or six-inning pitcher tops, and but, but for those five- or six-innings has great stuff, just isn't is not efficient enough.
2: And Evan Grant tweet. I was you know, yeah. noticed him tweeting from Rangers camp about how good Shepherds looked this morning. So right,
0: right. You I, could you could go
2: if if you see Shepherds at his best. I think he probably gets you the most excited. Um, Kim, you ranked Kimbrell first, right, Jim? Ahead of those three? Yeah, I
1: actually ranked the three guys all right next to each other. I had Kimbrell, I think, looks like eighty eighth, McGee eighty or McGee eighty and then Shepard's ninetieth on my list.
0: I mean, I think the way they wound up, McGee, Shepard, Kimbrell, is almost like in their, which one could possibly be a starter in the big leagues. Mm-hmm. It's almost like how it wound up being ranked. I do think McGee being left-handed gave him an advantage. But Kimbrell is maybe the most sure guy to – he's the one who's most likely to get save opportunities on a contending team in 2011. He might have the best rookie season of those three guys. Yeah, I mean, he's going to be important
2: to the Braves this year.
0: Yeah, and he's already done it. I mean, he's had, he's had postseason experience as well. Yeah. So. Um, doesn't mean that he, just because he's third out of these guys, he's still a relief pitcher in our top 100. So uh, we wind up not as not as young as a wild card at number 100 this year in Joe Benson. I don't know if we call that Mr. Irrelevant. It's the, it's the 100th most relevant uh, prospect. There are many, I don't know who the least relevant minor leaguer in the game is, but it's not Joe Benson. Uh, but sometimes it seems like we go with a younger, almost seems like Jonathan Villar is more of a classic top 100 guy or number 100 guy than Joe Benson. But Joe Benson, for a guy who's been in the minor leagues for four or five years, still has a lot of volatility there. I don't think we know exactly. I think Mr. Irrelevant
2: be. would be number 193 on the raw list, which would be Jan Marinas of the Marlins.
0: There you go. One spot ahead of, uh, behind Xavier Avery. Xavier Avery would be a very, uh, for me, irrelevant prospect. I to I'm giving uh, too little credit to the Orioles there. Is he your number three Orioles prospect?
2: Yeah, that's the funny thing about the Orioles. They have two
0: guys way at
2: the top of the list and then, Nobody else on the list even really got serious consideration for the top 100.
0: Were you the only one who voted for? I don't think that's think even it me, me voting for it's Avery. Me.
2: Third column, that's Again, me. the guy who hammers him is the guy <laughs> who voted for him.
0: Uh, that's just how it works out. Um, high risers and guys who slipped, we wanted to touch on that a little bit. Uh, and the high risers are more fun to talk about. We already mentioned a couple of them. Michael Pineda. I think Brandon Belt, uh, Jim, is one of the guys that we've – discussed a lot this year um that's about as good of a minor league season as you could have I mean Devin Masarocco we did his pro him.
1: debut too I mean it wasn't just a great minor league season it was his pro debut and he gets to triple a and he leads the minors in hitting and ops and uh you know really could not have done much more than he did I I don't think anybody saw that coming
0: no not even the johnson
1: you know we we knew he was a prospect he was just hurt the year before Brandon Bell was a fifth round pick who signed for a couple hundred thousand dollars. The Giants tweaked his stance, and and he was a totally different guy last year.
0: I love looking at uh, Matt Eddy's write up of Pineda from the year before, because you can tell his write up is better than the number seven prospect in that list. And you can tell that Matt. Well, we put said him,
1: at the time, John, yeah, when the Cliff Lee trade that made no sense went down, why didn't the Phillies go get Michael Pineda?
0: Well, we, we I remember talking about that on the phone with you last year, <laughs> so uh, it didn't make sense. Um, but clearly his injuries were what held him down on our Mariners list last year, but he was so good in the Cal League playoffs. And Matt specified and was talking about that and writing about that. Um, yeah, it's surprising. The Phillies, I think, do a great job in amateur scouting. I think they've done a nice job in some trades too, but man, they uh, that, that's one where it didn't go so well for them. Um, but Devin Masarocco at 64, another guy who the previous year was number 30 in the Reds uh, system um, I don't know. Maybe this is unfair to put you on the spot like this, Jim, and I'm going to put me and Will on the spot too. But is there a guy outside the top 100 who you think could jump really high into the top 100 this year?
1: So you're not it. putting me on the spot, John, because that was that was my ask BA this week. Was, uh, <laughs> oh, I'm not putting you on the spot. Guys, I thought could make the big. So you're, you're actually you just that were, right in my wheelhouse. You, okay. you're <laughs> striking me out. I just took you out of the park. But, uh, I actually <laughs> you haven't done it yet. Guys. <laughs> and my and my three guys, my my top three guys were. Uh, Yasmani Grandal was was candidate number one. He was a guy who just missed the top 100. And I, I do did read think, this. with what we were just talking about with the minor league catching pool, Grandal could be right near the top of that group next year if he continues the progress he made in college last year. And then I had a couple of lefties who I think got overlooked a little bit but have tremendous arms. You have Alex Torres in the Rays system and Chad James in the Marlins system that, you know, we were just talking about left handers, you know, how they were tightly bunched. You know, it wouldn't surprise me at all if one or both of those guys inserted themselves in the discussion as, you know, this guy might be the best left-hander in the minors next year.
2: I thought Matt Lipka, um, brave shortstop prospect. I Again, I'll have to look and see if I actually did put him in my top 100. I felt like <laughs> I put him in my top 100 this year. Um, yeah, I had him firmly in the mix.
0: Um, <laughs> nice. Yeah, number
1: 70.
2: Yeah, so I, I think he'll be in there uh, next year. Um, that was also
0: an SBA, wasn't Matt Lipka an SBA this week? I
2: mean, Matt Lipka was also an SBA this week. Jared Mitchell's a guy who I don't think I put on my top 150 this year, but I think he's a guy who could, uh, you know, obviously, had a lost season last year. I think he could, you know, get back where he was a year ago if he if he has a good year this year.
0: I've always been a Jason Knapp guy. I believe in Jason Knapp. If he has a healthy year this year uh, with the Indians, I, I think he could. Jump up this list in a hurry. I know he has some funk in his arm action, but he's, his arm is so quick. He doesn't sound like he lingers in a bad spot. Um, I, I, I understand his risk there, but I like him as a pick to click in 2011. Other guy for me is Caleb Cowart. Um, our high school player of the year last year. I think the scouting consensus was that he's going to be a better pitcher than hitter, but it wouldn't shock me if he had a really big season offensively this year for the Angels. Uh, Caleb Cowart might just be one of those guys like a Buster Posey who just, uh, you know, he he got a lot of comparisons to a lot of guys uh, in high school last year. And I know he his batting stance evokes Chipper Jones. He's a switch-hitting third baseman. To me, he's got some Buster Posey in him. I mean, that, he's a, a Georgia kid who uh, wanted to hit. Everybody else wanted him to pitch. Uh, Caleb Coward had a team that was le- willing to let him hit out of high school. Buster Posey did not have that. Uh, he, people wanted him to pitch. That's why he, and he wanted to hit. He went to Florida State everybody wrong, keeps doing it at every level. I'm not saying that Caleb Coward's going to be Buster Posey, but um, he does have that uh, – I think he has that chance to be – not just a not just to have a good debut, but to have a real star debut. Uh Midwest League, I know, can be tough, but it wouldn't shock me if he went out there and put up Moustakas numbers in the Midwest League or uh, Nick Franklin numbers and have that kind of big season. Um, how about some of those guys who slipped from last year's list to this year's list? The two that jumped out to Will and I when we were – Talking about this were uh, Martin Perez and Desmond Jennings. We've talked a little bit about Martin Perez, Jim. Uh, What's your take? I don't know if you weighed in on Martin Perez. Uh, How much of a pass do you give him for 2010, and what's your expectation for him for
1: 2011? Uh, I didn't give him a pass. I mean, it's tough on those guys because I think it's real easy, and you see a lot of prospect analysis where – I, and the guy I always draw draw the, the parallel to is Luis Rivas when he came up through the twin system about nice. 10 years ago. Uh, and who knows what his real age was, but his listed age always made him by about two years, youngest guy in his league. And Luis Rivas would go out and not do very much, and you'd always hear, ah, oh, but he's young, you know, he'll get better, you know, as he gets older. And Luis Rivas never really got any better. So, you, you, you know, on one hand, you do get cut the guy some slack for being young, but on the other hand, I think it's also easy just to excuse that. So I still like him. I ranked him 33rd overall, you know, which is not too far off with where he came out. I think we ranked him 24th overall. But it does bother me a little bit that the guy has been up. You know, It wasn't just last year. It was the year before, too. And while he did get to Double A very early, the stuff was down a little bit last year. And he really has not had that much success in about 30, 35 starts at the Double A level. So, you know, I still like him, uh, you know, still like him quite a bit. But I do think, you know, as young as he is, he still needs to come out and and, and turn a corner next year and, and do better.
2: And to me, uh, the Desmond Jennings down year was mostly injury driven. But John, you probably saw Desmond Jennings, or not probably, you did see Desmond Jennings more than either of us. So
0: probably too much. <laughs> probably too much. I need to stop uh, relying on what I saw. But yeah, I mean, he. But I he mean, didn't... You, you have
2: a, a good a good perspective on him. So you can give us the upside and the downside. I know he had
0: hand and wrist issues, um, but he just didn't impact the ball. If it's not home runs, it's one thing. He just didn't consistently impact the ball when I saw him a and B uh, you know, he's one of these players, Jim, I mean, he's like an Andrew Jones kind of player where either he just goes just hard enough and that's, and he makes the game look easy or he doesn't play hard. And I've talked to scouts on both sides of that divide with Desmond Jennings. And you know, He's also 24, and he'll be 25 this year. You can't really project too much more on this guy. Um, yeah, that's the
2: interesting thing about them being so close. Perez and Jennings being close to each other, that age divide almost makes them two sides of, of a coin.
0: We had some guys who dropped off of list. You know, an list.
2: interesting
1: thing is – Go ahead. I was going to say, where do we have Perez ranked on last year's list?
0: Pretty doggone high. I just passed by that and uh, – but we had him at seventeen, yeah. so I mean
1: he only moved down seven spots for the year he had, you know Desmond Jennings we had at number six, which you know uh, he high. dropped what you know only sixteen top. spots you know the other guy who was in our top twenty who who took a bigger plunge than either one of those guys was Aaron Hicks, you I mean, Aaron that's... Hicks ranked 19th last year right he's still you know very high at forty five but you know he had kind of a strange deal, and I think you touched on this in your column, John, in the last issue. You know, he repeated low class set. You know, mm-hmm. he was the top prospect in the Midwest League in 2009. Didn't have a great year, but had a, you know, had a good year, especially considering his age in the league. And he went back and spent all of 2010 back in the Midwest League. And, you know, guys still liked him a lot, and he still showed the same tools. But he really didn't even have that much of a better year. It was basically the same year he had the year before.
0: It's almost impossible to go back. I had to go back to 1991, the second year we did the top 100, to find any player that we had ranked – after repeating low class A, I think the only the, only the guys who I found who had been top 100 players ever who would repeated low class A were guys. Well, there was Joey Votto, who's not a comparable player. I knew had like a half season where he to repeat and was promoted. Austin Jackson, kind of a similar player. Low A, then repeated a half season and earned his way up to high A and finished the year in double A that year in the Eastern League playoffs. Um, and Preston Wilson was another player I found who's, again, they're both center fielders. And toolsy, but completely different types of players. Preston Wilson, I think think Aaron Hicks has walked more in a month than Preston Wilson did in those two years combined. Um, He's just hacktastic. I would think that would be
2: rare to find just for anybody, any player who's considered any level of prospect. Not just a top 100 type guy. That's right. I mean – Class A is almost like, I mean, low class A is almost like first grade. You just get passed out of there for <laughs> for getting through the year.
0: It's like graduate school. You just you, whether you go or <laughs> Once not. Once you're in,
2: you, you pass. You show up and you move on.
0: But uh, but yeah, so the guys I found were Jeff McNeely and uh, who was it? Reggie Sanders, who you wrote it, to show how old Jim is. <laughs> Sorry, I'm stuck on that today. But you wrote about those guys when they played for Lon Joyce at Spartanburg Junior College.
1: Well, it was actually after they were just approved, I did a feature on the two of them, uh, and I think I told you, I I remember vividly being, one, that's when I met Buster only for the first time, he was working for the Chattanooga paper, and we ran into each other in Plant City, Florida, while I was waiting to talk to uh, Reggie Sanders, and then, uh, I don't even remember... Jeff McNeely repeating Lele. I, I don't even remember that part of it, but they both played Spartan Methodist. They both played for Lon Joyce, who's now a scout in the Dodgers system. I, I still, for whatever reason, and, and things you remember that don't mean anything, remember that they both had the same middle name, which was Laverne, uh, which was odd. But uh, yeah, it's uh, you know very odd. You know, you just don't see that. As Will was saying, I mean, even if you have a bad year, you usually.
2: Well, did you? I mean, did people in the Midwest League say? markedly different things about him this year compared to last year?
1: No, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, the tools were the same. I mean, you're still talking about one of the best outfield arms in the majors and plus speed and, you know, an interesting bat. I mean, he's, he's got a pronounced split, you know, as a switch hitter. I mean, he's, he's almost got like a, a Josh Bell type of imbalance between one side and the other. But, you know, kind of the consensus was, I mean, and, and many people said this, was you know, yeah, you know, you wish he had a better year. You know, considering he's repeating the league and he finished strong last year, but it's still hard not to love those tools. And John,
2: from the Twins' perspective, what is the thinking behind having a guy do another full tour of the Midwest
0: League? Well, I think a big part of it is that they have sw- swing issues to iron out with him, and the Twins are they're in no hurry. <laughs> you know, they have outfielders, they have Denard Span. They have Ben Revere. They have Joe Benson. All three of those guys at their top levels, all of them swift enough and capable of playing center field. So they've got all kinds of time in their minds, and they're going to go ahead and um, they're going to go ahead and be patient uh, with you know a player like Aaron Hicks who needs improvement. So um, Jim, Jim, you're going to correct me on my on my column. I think I think that's I'm a victim of Baseball Reference listing Elmira as Class A. Uh oh. That's what happened there. I, I remember looking that up. And I, I think
1: what happened on McNeely was I think he got hurt at the beginning of the season, and then they sent him back to Elmira at mid-season to kind of ease back in. But uh,
0: well, we still ranked him a player yeah, who be had, a big Jeff- we still ranked the player who'd been at that low level. He's actually, in terms of his uh, numbers, a really good comparison for Aaron Hicks as a guy who didn't show a lot of power.
1: Similarly, tool player
0: and similarly walked a lot. Player. He also walked a lot. And that's what Aaron Hicks does. So to me, Aaron Hicks at 45 is actually quite an aggressive ranking for a guy who repeated low way and has some real swing issues. I mean, to me, Aaron Hicks and Jonathan Villar aren't that different. One guy was a first round pick. Maybe Jonathan Villar strikes out more often, but you know Jonathan Villar has also got a lot more defensive value in the infield. So I, to me, in my head, those two guys aren't that aren't that dissimilar. Um, but Aaron Hicks has a much bigger. Um, you know, name recognition, I guess, A, because we didn't get his name wrong in the handbook last year, and B, because he was a first round pick. The other guy who fell a lot are the two athletics outfielders, Michael Taylor from like 28 to out, Chris Carter from 27 to 91. Um, I wrote about Carter as well and the risk factors. And that's just one that I always remember when Josh Boyd worked here. Um, the right, right first baseman is a difficult profile. And you know we've that's a that's a demographic we have missed on a lot in 20 years, to whether going back to the early 90s with Tim Costo, to more recently with Brian DuPyrick, um, who was it, and Jason Stokes, a guy where the Marlins were like no we're holding on to Jason Stokes yes you can have uh, Adrian Gonzalez give us Ugi Urbina you know mm-hmm. obviously they won a World Series, but that's why maybe even though Chris Carter might be more athletic than those guys and he certainly will hit home runs. Uh, that's why I was lower on Chris Carter. I think the most because I just—that's I, I, something that I'm trying to be more conscious of in my own rankings. And even—and I—and I wasn't enough with Jerry Sands of the Dodgers. I think I ranked Jerry Sands, but when push comes to shove, I probably need to acknowledge that the chances are better that Jerry Sands is going to be in this. These right, right, stiff first baseman, now, cornerback guys. I think it's fair to say
2: anybody in the back ten of the list could have been exchanged with. About twenty or thirty other guys, yeah. who got significant support. Uh, you mentioned Yasmani Grandal. Um, you know, there Jordan Walden. I thought was a guy who yeah. missed the list, but easily could have been on the list. So. Probably going to make our top twenty rookies. You would think so, yeah.
0: Um, but that's you know Carter to me that 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 risk factor is significant for him because you look at the history of our top one hundred, the, the right right first baseman in the big leagues either started at other positions, Paul Konerko, catcher slash third base, Albert Pujols third base, or they're really good athletes like a Derek Lee. Um, I, I, most of the right, you know, again, Kevin Uckelis was a third baseman, first baseman, now back to third. Um, so the, the the right, right, minor league first base, that's just not a profile I'm bullish on. And I think that the industry thinks that way. But I think it's easy to, locking on that power. And it's also we also hear scouts talk about it, Jim, in the, in the draft. Boy, it's getting harder and harder to find right-handed power, you know? I mean, uh, so do you think either of those A's guys can bounce back this year, uh, Taylor or Carter?
1: I think they're bad. That's a hard question because when Chris Carter was so good in 2009, you know, I try not to, uh, you know, rely too much on what I see firsthand. But I remember when we saw those guys at the Futures game, we saw Chris Carter there, I thought he looked kind of big and stiff. He didn't blow me away at all. I always actually liked him less, even though he had the huge 2009. I mean, he did improve in the second half. After a horrible start in the big leagues, he, he got going a little bit. Uh, I guess I have more faith in him than Michael Taylor. You know, Taylor, I think, outside of Ryan Westmoreland, who had brain surgery and didn't play, you know, Taylor was the highest-ranked guy from last year's list who, who didn't appear on this year's list. You know, he went, you know, from, I think, 28th or 29th all the way off the list. And, the thing that worries me about him is just nobody can give you an explanation as to what happened to him
2: last year. Right, he was, he yeah, was just bad and
1: never really snapped out of it.
2: It's interesting that Carter was, you know, hotly debated in the top 100 meeting whether he should be on or off. But Taylor, I mean, yeah. no, nobody was arguing for him to be on the list. So.
0: And he was, he barely
1: made our ace top 10. I yeah, mean, that's it, true. I yeah, don't even think he got, I don't think anybody put him on their top 150.
0: I, I don't think it helps Taylor. There's uh, just a residual memory, at least with me and you, Jim, I know. Uh, this was a highly touted guy in high school who had a bad senior year in high school and then had a bad freshman and sophomore years at Stanford and really figured things out at the college level, like in his last six weeks of his college career, seven weeks. And that was a year where Stanford had to win, like, its last nine games, to have a winning – to not go under 500, and, um And then he hit – he kept on hitting with the Phillies – for a guy that size, the power never came out. And there's, again, that right-right that profile. You know, it's just hard. I mean, I know he's athletic, but he's a 6'6", 250. Um, I happen to think that Michael Taylor, probably never as good as he showed in the Philly system, but not as bad as he was last year. I think his shoulder injury that he had in winter ball in Mexico uh, in the offseason last year affected him more than uh, he let on. I, I do expect him to bounce back somewhat this year, but I just think he's not going to be an impact guy. Uh, he never even – even in those years that he was hitting in the Phillies minor league system, I don't think he ever hit more than 20 home runs in a year. And at his size, I, I just see him being a guy I, – I don't see him being Jermaine Dye. I think that's what you thought he could be a couple of years ago, and I just don't think we're going to see that kind of player out of Michael Taylor. But he's a guy I definitely root for, one of my favorite interviews ever, and, uh, and a very intriguing career. Uh, but I think between his own background, the Stanford hitter bias that comes up when I talk to scouts about him, people don't like the way Stanford coaches hitters, and that's definitely held against Stanford hitters in minor league. Uh, when you're evaluating minor, minor league players, I think all that I, I couldn't find a scout who either had a good reason why they thought he was struggling this year versus the you know what he did in the past, or who really believed in him uh, coming out. So I kind of I'm rooting for him, but I don't have a whole lot of confidence in that. I, mean, I mean, think there's, there's also t- a
1: reason, too, the Phillies, whenever you, they were engaged in trade talks, you know, he was always the guy they were willing to trade, but they were never going to trade Dominic Brown. I mean, I, I, think the Phillies, I think the Phillies did a good job of selling high on Michael Taylor.
0: I think and that's one aspect I know of J.J.'s story uh, for that future issue. You've got to know what you have. Uh, if you're going to try to win at the big leagues with those prospects, you better know your own prospects. And we talked about the Braves. The Braves, yeah. The Braves have always done that pretty well. Not too many guys, outside of Jason Schmidt, uh, not many guys in that 90s run of dominance, and that 14-year division title run, they usually didn't trade guys who came back to bite them. Uh, Obviously, that run ended with the Mark Teixeira trade. (laughs) See, Neftali Feliz and Elvis Andrews. Uh, Feliz was pretty high on this list last year. I don't think anyone left off that trade in the minor leagues for the Rangers, who we think will will come back. But uh, Feliz and Andrews are enough, I think, uh, for Atlanta. Anything else, Jim, for you on the top 100?
1: No, I mean, I guess the other thing that jumped out, and, and we'll touched on this a little bit at the beginning, is I, I just thought this year was harder coming up with a hundred or hundred fifty prospects than most. I, you know, I, I think the we had that really good two thousand eight draft, you know, led by Buster Posey and Pedro Alvarez, and you know, not led by uh,
0: not Thank led you. by. Uh, that's Tim Beckham.
1: Beckham, who's not on the not on our top 100 at all, even though he's our one pick. But well, that 2008 draft was so good that the players almost, you know, so many players almost got mm-hmm. to the big leagues ahead of schedule. You know, Justin Smoke, Gordon Beckham, you know, and on and on and on, that it left a little bit of a shortfall. I just, for me, after about 30 prospects. I was like, man, I can't believe I have to come up with another 120. Because I mean, you, you like all these guys, and you can see some promise in them. But again, John, you're trying to make us all seem <laughs> agent today. I mean, I think the longer you do this, you see so many of these guys not pin out, um, or you know, and the guys, you know, their shortcomings overpower their strengths in the long run. That you, you become more cynical uh, yeah, about thinking... prospects, and you know, I, I just I know when I was getting to the end of the hundred, let alone 150 thinking I'm not, you know, a super big fan of this guy, but I guess he's the best guy left on the list.
2: Yeah, for sure on the back of the list you can see holes in in all these guys' games. I was also thinking, you know, in the back half or so, you expect the guys in the top 100 to be kind of household names, at least in the prospect world. But, I mean, Trey McNutt, people who follow the Cubs and – Jim Callis obviously know who he is, but he's not necessarily a big
0: name. He's number forty eight on the list. That's um, a good point. I mean, Trey McNutt's really good, but he's not a guy who I think in past years you thought maybe he would be like sixty. You got okay, you did it one time. Let's see you do it again, right? You know, or even a guy uh, Gary Sanchez. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, we've got uh, we've gotten overheated on big bonus players before. Uh, guilty is charged, but I mean, like I really have a hard time seeing how Gary Sanchez doesn't have a higher ceiling than all those catchers that we talked about. Or even like a Manny Machado, one of the debates we had in the top 100. How's he different uh, necessarily than Manny Machado? Why should he rank so much further behind? Uh, you know, so we definitely I agree with you, Jim. This was a harder year to rank. I think we have a consensus. That it was a harder year to rank, and uh, you know that that made it, but it didn't make it less fun, or it didn't make the podcast. Now, less I think fun. it actually
2: made it more fun because to me, you had to go study the guys a little bit harder just to make sure you had a good read on. Because, you know, after a guy has been in the minors for a while, you get a thumbnail in your head of who he is as a prospect. A lot of these guys, you know, took a little bit extra research to make sure you had a good read on what you thought of them. So, to me, it made it, even you know, more challenging but also more fun.
0: I know we're a little long here, but one other note I wanted to bring up, I think it's just amazing, Jim, obviously not anything planned. What was it, 50 guys out of our top 100 got a million-dollar bonuses and 50 got less than a million dollars? Is that how yeah, it broke exactly.
1: Down? You know, I, yeah, and that was kind of funny how that worked out. I was I was cranking numbers, and uh, that's exactly how it worked out. And you know, I guess what surprised me too, although you know, and it wasn't all as Chapman, but you know, the international players on the list actually averaged two point four million in guaranteed money, as opposed to the drafted players averaging about one point nine million. You know, which you know, a big part of that is the fact that Rollins Chapman got a thirty million dollar contract. But then you know, they did. You know, again, I think it shows you free market versus the draft. You, know, you have Arlos Chapman, you know, 30.25 million big league contract. You know, Bryce Harper's number two with a 9.9 million dollar big league contract, and you know, those guys are both in the top ten of prospects. And then number three on the list, and I think he's the best defensive player in the minors right now. You know, but it's Jose Iglesias, huh. you know, who, who came out ranked in the middle of the list. He got 8.25 million. So I think anyway, get it was the interesting medium, for me what the, the numbers the that these guys there. got cause they're just
0: all over. It. Median, mode, and what else? The mean.
2: The median and the mode. So we can get a truer read of what's in the middle on there,
0: I think that's a a subscriber only to Countless Column, (laughs) I believe. Uh, So we're not going to give all that away here on the podcast. You guys can tweet about it all you want now that the podcast has been recorded. and Give it all away. But, uh, no, we thank everybody, obviously, for the the, the podcast is free, and the top 100 will be presented free at BaseballAmerica.com as well. But uh, if you want all those scouting reports, the prospect handbook is obviously the place to go. Uh, you can order that still on BaseballAmerica.com in our store link in the upper right-hand corner of the website. Uh, so thanks, Jim and Will, for all the time today. This is an hour-long podcast. It took a lot longer than that to record. So I want to thank everybody for being patient and for the download. And we'll see you next time on the Baseball America podcast. So long, everybody.